Our scriptural text today is the first three verses of the well-known 1 Corinthians 13. The focus of my remarks is actually on the first part of verse 4, but I'd like to read the preceding three verses uh, in its context. Early in the church's history, uh, our catechisms uh, did an exposition of the Ten Commandments. You find it as early as Luther's catechism and the Roman Catholic catechism, and of course our larger catechism has been ex- an, uh, included an exposition of the Decalogue. And it normally follows the, what is the first commandment, what are the duties required in the first commandment, what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment. It's a very, very edifying document. If you've ever worked through the larger catechism, you'll note that they scripture-proof many, many clauses. And for each of their question and answers, it's quite lengthy. It took me about a month to work through it this summer. I was writing it out in longhand because it helps me remember things to do that. I'm doing a little bit each day, it took a while to get through. And I've often thought, what would have happened if instead of choosing the Decalogue, these wise people at Westminster had chosen Philippians 2 and to exposit all that, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Or if they had chosen 1 Corinthians 13, phrase by phrase and clause by clause, with their great theological knowledge and their very sincere piety, it would be wonderful to know what Westminster would have done with 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure they would have hit it out of the park. You can pretty much uh, be uh, sure of that. But... Uh, the closest we get to it, my knowledge, is uh, Jonathan Edwards' little book, Charity and Its Fruits. Uh, uh, he's mostly known as a philosophical theologian, you know, and uh, he's normally over my head. But he wrote uh, some other things that were quite edifying and practical. And Charity and Its Fruits is his exposition of 1 Corinthians 13, and it's replete with pastoral wisdom and Christian comfort. So I commend that book to you. Let us then consider these first uh, several verses of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. In the first three verses, Paul asserts that love is the greatest of all present human virtues. Faith is very important. Hope is very important. Love is most important. And towards the end of the chapter, he indicates when everything else has passed away, we'll enter a world where we are perfected in love and the people we are with are perfected in love. And so there's this eternal goodness about love um, that uh, he celebrates throughout the, uh, the book. The chapter, it's so lovely, and we're so familiar with it. The chapter as a whole, we kind of just let it wash over us the way we do when we hear a good hymn. Uh, we don't normally stop and analyze it carefully as we might a Robert Frost poem. We, we just bathe in it, I think. And that's good. I bathe in it, too. Um, And yet, it's a very fascinating thing. It's so carefully composed. Uh, Paul mentions 16 things about love in 1 Corinthians 13, eight things that love is or does, and eight things that love is not or does not. 
of perfect parity, almost like the larger catechism expositing the Decalogue. These are what it is, and this is what it isn't, and so forth. And so when you consider how carefully composed it is, um, you realize that he was, he was thinking the whole time. He didn't lump all of the things that it is in one place and all the things that it isn't in another, but something else must have motivated him to weave together the thing as he did. And at some point, I, I remember asking myself as I was studying it, if we asked 100 people what love is, we might get 95 answers. We might get 102 or 103 because some people give us more than one opinion. But at any rate, I doubt the first thing at the top of our list would be the first thing at the top of Paul's list. What the ESV translates as love is patient. And as the King James, as I'll suggest in a moment, more accurately translate, suffers long. Uh, so I want to talk about that trait. It's not as straightforward as we might think. And I want to talk about this trait that he first mentions as the characteristic of love and then raise very briefly with you why is it so important that he puts it in this first place. Right? Why does he give it pride of place in this very important thing? So uh, you'll note that uh, uh, translating is a very, very difficult task because the way languages work is it's very rare for two of them to have the same stock of words. And sometimes the definite definition of a word in one language doesn't have a pure equivalent in the other language, and you're doing the best you can. Uh, but in this case, uh, the, I think the King James did get it better, and, and several of the newer translations have also followed that by translating it, suffers long. That's how they translate it. And so, for instance, uh, you know, I taught Greek for, I don't know, 41 years, and uh, I'd like to think I was patient, that if students were working hard to understand it, I gave them the benefit of the doubt and so forth, you know. Uh, but... I rarely suffered while teaching Greek. My students did, <laughs> nearly all of them, uh, but I didn't, right? So there's a part here where the King James gets it right. When we endure, experience, or suffer something for a long time, he says, love is the quality that's willing to do so, if need be. And so even the way the term is composed suggests that, listen to just a couple other passages where the, the term that's translated here as it is, how it's translated in Ephesians 4, Paul said, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all lowliness and meekness, with patience, our term in the noun form, with patience forbearing one another in love. Note then that patience may require forbearing, enduring, putting up with, we would probably say. And so, as Paul uses it. And so note also in Proverbs 19.11, where at least in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, the term appears there also. Good sense, good sense makes a man slow to anger. That's how they translate our word. Slow to anger. Good sense makes a man slow to anger, and it is glory to overlook an offense. Now, you know that the Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament is this way. They call it parallelism, that a thing is said, 
in two ways. Sometimes it's an antithetic parallelism where the opposite, the wicked flee when no one pursues, the righteous are bold as a lion. That's an opposite. And then sometimes the second line is almost synonymous and restates the first in a slightly different way. And I think that's what we have here in Proverbs 19. Good sense makes a man slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook an offense. You see? You see? Because my tendency when I've been wounded, offended, or hurt is to right expect retribution, to seek retribution, to wish retribution, right? To strike back, right? And so he says... Good sense makes a man slow to anger. He knows how to control it, and it is his glory to overlook a thing. Now, the the word itself is made from two Greek words, and uh, one of them is the normal word for anger, and really furious anger. Thumos is used many times in the Greek text to refer to the return of Christ in judgment, when God will execute his vengeance on the wicked. And so, uh, so when all of the holiness of God that has awaited for centuries, right, to hold the wicked accountable to him, when he unleashes that, it's going to be crazy, right? It's wild. And so uh, thumos doesn't mean just displeasure. It means real anger and provocation. And the other hard part of it is far away. So it means that you've put off that anger for a long, long time the way God has delayed his final judgment for generations after generation, after generation. And so, uh, this, this is what, how it's used in the gospel narrative. Uh, when Peter has denied Jesus, and then Jesus is now journeying towards Golgotha with his cross, and it says that uh, Peter was following him at a distance, and the word that's translated at a distance is the first, is half of our word. You bet it was a distance, a long way off, because he was now ashamed of his behavior and have, having let the Savior down, and so he was way off. And so when we put that anger way off, you see, that's the sense that's going on here. So it's when one's expected anger is intentionally put off and delayed for as long as needs be. Uh, that's what's going on. So it's not quite like the patience of a teacher with a student. Students don't make us angry. It's their F, not mine. (laughs) There's no skin on my nose. The dean used to pay me the same amount if all 20 got A's and if all 20 got F's. Right? I wasn't angry. Right? I think some of them were angry with the F's on occasion, but didn't anger me. But this term is the term used for the kind of self-restraint and self-control that resists our natural tendency to be vengeful when we've been injured or hurt or wounded by someone. That's what the text is about. And so, we now look and see how that term is used in some other passages of Scripture. You may recall towards the end of Exodus, where Moses has effectively finished doing all that he's going to do, and he's going to hand the reins over to Joshua. And in those last chapters... um, you know, he, he sort of feels like, before I go to be with my fathers in the grave, as it were, I have one request to make of God. And he requested to see God's face, didn't he? Right? I would like to see God's face. Right? And, uh, and I guess the first time I ran, read that as a child, I probably thought, it seems fair enough. Moses has gone through a lot. Pharaoh wasn't any fun. The locusts weren't any fun. You know, <laughs> Passover and this kind of thing. 
the Israelites rebelling in the wilderness? Give the man a break, right? Give him a retirement party. He wants to see the face of God. Let him see the... Well, he didn't, did he? Right? So here's what it says there in verse 20 of Exodus 33. The Lord said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand upon the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses went up as per the instructions, and in the next chapter, 34, he has this encounter where the glory of God passes by him, but all he sees is from the back at a kind of a distance. And it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the expression slow to anger is our expression that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul was a good reader of Holy Scripture. I think he knew, right, that the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, disclosed himself to Moses the prophet as a God who was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So Paul sees it as perhaps the most commendable in a fallen world, dwelling with fellow sinners. It's, it's almost like being at a family reunion of porcupines. Someone's going to get stuck every now and then, right? Injuries are going to occur. And so, will we become vindictive? What will we do, you see? And so, preeminently, we say, if God in all of His holiness is slow to express it, we, who are less holy, should be slow to express ours. And of course, as you know, that passage is repeated probably eight or ten, twelve times in the Holy Scriptures. They keep repeating this. Uh, it's in the Psalms several times, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to God, merciful and gracious, and so forth. And so note then that God is actually slow to anger when he's offended. He does not quickly retaliate or repay, even when those have offended his majesty. And so... Uh, you recall when Moses uh, leaves the ark. Uh, I'm sure he's eager to get his feet on ground and get his sea legs gone and his ground legs back and all this kind of a thing. And, uh, and so it's an interesting part. But, you know, there's a certain fear that he had that we don't because we know how the story ends. Can you imagine how he felt when he left that ark? Can you imagine if he starts planting the ground again? And then he hears thunder off in the distance one day. What's he going to think? Uh-oh. Right? I know how this ended last time. Right? And so the Lord, as you recall, gives this really gracious covenant to Noah. So uh, Noah builds an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and warmth, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so the rainbow in the sky, you see, is this lovely covenant he makes because it takes two things to make a rainbow. It requires sunshine and rain, right? And I'm sure Noah would have thought, 
that uh, it's just going to be endless rain for hundreds of days, you know, it'll be a terrible, awful thing. And so when we see a rainbow, we say, God is delaying his final accounting, and he's pledged that he will do so. And there will be a certain regularity to life between Noah and the return of our Savior when he comes in fiery judgment to separate the wheat uh, and the chaff. Now, there's a few exceptions. Uh, Adab and Nabahu were consumed by fire for offering false fire. The apostles had the one couple lie to them about the money they'd given and didn't go well for them. So there's the occasional. But those are blips on the screen. The rest of us sin every single day in thought, word, and deed. That's what the catechism says. And that's my experience. I didn't need the catechism to tell me I sin daily in thought, word, and deed. I have a mother-in-law. I already knew. You see, she tells me plenty. So, uh, so note then... Uh, that this is the remarkable reality of the Noahic covenant. Think of how long God has endured the offenses against His majesty from Adam until today. And He's put off His wrath. He's put off His anger. He's put it off. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He delays His judgment redemptively. You may recall that the scoffers in the New Testament would sometimes pick on the church and its ministers and say, oh, sure, for the last 15 years you've been saying Christ is going to return and judge the wicked, separate them from the righteous forever. He hasn't come, right? He hasn't come. He's not going to come, right? See, they used God delaying His judgment as a tool and a weapon against Him. So Peter said this, do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you. And the word translated forbearing, guess what? It's the word in 1 Corinthians 13. He's putting off His anger. He's forbearing toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. But for now, we live in that era where God suspends the full expression of his anger for human sin. He puts it off for a long, long time. And it's such a long time that no one really knows how long it is. We're fairly sure from the uh, uh, records of ancient New Eastern texts around the time of uh, Moses that many of the genealogies in Genesis are incomplete. That is to say, they'll call someone the son of so-and-so when there's two generations in between. So as long and boring as those long lists of generations are, they're not even all of it. There are enormous gaps in there. And so you have generation after generation after generation of sinners raising our hands against the rule of Almighty God and resisting His reign. And unlike us, He doesn't snap at every occasion. He puts off his anger. He's forbearing toward us, not wishing that we should perish. Now, his patience is not to be misunderstood. His delaying his judgment should not be taken to mean he approves our sin in any way. And it should not be taken to mean that he will not one day eventually have an accounting with the wicked. It means he's putting it off for an enormously long time. But it's coming. We just don't know exactly when. It also doesn't mean we should presume upon his kindness when he delays his judgment. 
Uh, Dr. Armour and I were chatting recently about a friend of his who passed away just within the last month or so at age 67. Bothers, bothers me a little bit. I'm 67, <laughs> right? Then apparently this gentleman died suddenly with very little warning, right? So in one sense, the terminal act of judgment in this life, the time for which we can repent and turn back through Christ to God, could happen tonight, right? Could happen tonight. We never know. And we dare not presume, well, I can put off repentance and faith for another day because we may not have another day. So Paul warned the Romans about this. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, Paul says. That's how he says we should view the matter. It does mean that God has the most profound self-control, the most profound self-restraint of all beings. Uh, He has been offended more thoroughly, more frequently, more often by more people than we could even enumerate. If you think of it that T. David sins every day in thought, word, and deed, and I think it's more than once in each category. So that's 365 times 3 at a minimum every year for 67 years. And some of you have two. And there were people before us, and they did too, didn't they? And God is putting off, delaying his anger until the right time. He has perfect divine self-control over the expression of his anger. So, why is this so important that Paul puts it at the top of his list of things that characterize love, you see? I think it's because it is essential to our redemption and it is essential to hope. Suffering long, God suffering long says, I haven't given up on you yet. The situation is not hopeless. You are not yet lost beyond measure. As long as the gospel is being preached, there is someone out there who will dodge God's wrath one day, who will believe that message and be reconciled to God through Christ. And so he has not lost hope on his people made in his image. He knows the gospel will convert many of them. When we treat others with long-suffering, you see, as people made in the image of God, we have the privilege of emulating one of his most praiseworthy traits. When we endure the imperfections and even defenses of others and do not seek to retaliate, they become like Jean Valjean, don't they, and Les Miserables, who can hardly believe that someone forgives him for what he's done. And now the gospel becomes plausible to him. If a mere human can be patient, kind, forbearing, forgiving, then perhaps there's a God in in whose image this person was made. And so we're like little gospelettes as we walk through the world, right? We have the joy and privilege from time to time of being injured by others and exercising control over our natural response and desire to seek revenge. So the application of this, I suppose, is fairly straightforward. Uh, Love requires us to be like God, forbearing others when they injure us. Requires it, and I say invites it. It's a great privilege uh, to be the agent of God in someone's life. Here's what Edward said about this trait. Um, They that love God as they ought will have such a sense of his wonderful long-suffering toward them under the many injuries they've offered to him 
that it will seem to them but a small thing to bear with the injuries that have been offered to them by their fellow men. All the injuries they have ever received from others in comparison with those that have been offered to God will appear less than a few pence in comparison with 10,000 talents. You see, part of Edwards' reasoning there is this. Every offense against you is also an offense against God who made you and loves you. So I don't care how many times you've been offended. God's been offended every time you have been, and every, every time another of his children has been offended. It's an incalculable number, utterly numberless at times that God has been injured. And love requires us to strive to be like God and to forbear others when they wound us. And of course, long-suffering also requires then that we forgive many times. Uh, to be alive when Christ was in Galilee and preaching and teaching would have been an interesting time because part of me would have said, I want to ask this guy some questions. And another part of me would have said, no, I've seen how he answers questions before. <laughs> right? And so it's a tricky thing to ask Jesus questions. So Peter, good old Peter, the bull in the china shop of the apostolic church, came up and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter's probably thinking, it might be hard to do seven, but let me stretch the thing out there and see how it goes. Well, it was the bad question to ask, wasn't it, right? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times. And I think Jesus probably paused in the sentence there. I do not say to you seven times, pause. And in the pause, Peter goes, oh, maybe it's only five or six, right? So a skilled pause there. I do not say seven times. Peter's going, I think I could do a three, maybe a four. And so in that pause, and he starts his wheels going this way, thinking about the matter. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Right? 490, right? And when we come home complaining about someone at work or complaining with someone about our family or something like this, and we say, so-and-so always does X. I've said that myself many times. You know, it isn't always. It's not four, It's not even seven times normally. And it's surely not seven, it's not 490 times, right? And yet we feel like it's always, and we say it's always this person does that, you see. Well, uh, it's still not as many times as God has been offended. You'll never catch up with that. So finally, of course, then love requires that we never give up on others prior to the return of Christ. God delays his wrath until then, and we are called to do likewise. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we actually forbear and put off a long ways, including through eternity, and we allow God to execute vengeance for us someday. And he will execute wrath when he comes, but uh, right now uh, our duty is to be like him and to put off uh, our tendency to, re to revenge and to be vengeful. So when we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that little as we forgive our debtors, is the sticking point, isn't it? And about three verses later, he continues to teach about prayer. Uh, and he says to forgive because if you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. He only said that about two things, didn't he? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the theologians are still not entirely sure what that means. It probably means stout resistance to the operations of the Holy Spirit. But we know what this one means, right? 
If you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. And the reason is not so much that our forgiving others is the condition by which we earn God's forgiveness. The point is, how can you know God as a forgiving God who has forgiven your sins and be unwilling to extend the same grace to others? Those who've been forgiven a lot love a lot, our Savior said, and they surely do. So uh, we, are, we remind ourselves in that prayer to forgive others as God has forgiven us. May God give you uh, such an appreciation of his long-suffering, of his forbearance towards you, that it will be your duty and your joy to, to exhibit the same traits to others. Let us pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the Apostle Paul and for the wisdom you gave him. We thank you uh, for his wonderful hymn to love in 1 Corinthians 13. And we thank you for all of the richness that we find there. And we thank you also that he had the, the wisdom to mention in the first place that love suffers long, that it's forbearing, and it puts up with many sins and gives an opportunity for repentance. Help us never to lose our joy or gratitude to you for your forbearance. And help us, we pray, haltingly and imperfectly to exhibit the trait to others we ask through him who loves us and gave himself for us. Amen.